Nagra recording devices are like the size of a laptop or, or a, a, a tablet. They're these big reel to reel that burn your nuts off when yes, you get them anywhere in court. Exactly. So <laughs> our job over there was to meet with her, get her on hey, tape. Hey, real quickly, before you talk about that, you had been on 10 years. I mean, you grew up in that area. Was this your first trip uh, either on a plane or outside the country? No. No. I mean, for the department, it was my first, you know, outside the country, even outside the, the Northeast trip. You know, I had really gone nowhere. Uh, this was a very interesting thing. I never thought it was going to happen. I thought it was just, you know, a bunch of talk. But next thing I know, I'm on a plane. And it was fascinating. The DEA gives you money. Here you go. This is your money to spend when you're over there. And I was blown away by that. Um, everything about it was interesting. Uh, the Royal Hong Kong Police coordinated. They did what they're supposed to do over there for us, which is provide our security, protection, all this other stuff for the operation. But in fact, they largely weren't around. And I found it very disconcerting at the day we're doing a tactical meeting before we're going to go out and meet with this woman and, and try to get her on tape and try to get her to handwrite the, the account numbers again. So I had that definitively that all the notes that I had seized with the handwritten account information was in fact her, you know, all these things that would help build a case against her. We went to meet her and we we're supposed to meet her at uh, the Marriott Hotel in Hong Kong, and she doesn't show. I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there, and there's a, a couple of Royal Hong Kong cops somewhere in the area, I guess, kind of half watching. Sitting in the lobby, all of a sudden, I get called over the uh, over the loudspeaker for uh, to come up to the concierge. There's a call for you. I get there, it's her. She says, uh, plans changed. Meet me at this address. So now I'm trying to notify all these guys without being seen doing it that we're going someplace else. So Keith and I get into a cab, and rather than be in hustling, bustling Hotel District Hong Kong, we're now going up to Kowloon, northern Hong Kong, right near the Chinese border to a housing project where there's chickens running around and goats. And we are literally, you could take my body and throw it 50 feet. It's going to be in PRC, China, and some, and some you know, hog is going to eat it. it. And we got there to do this meeting and she's on like the 12th floor. Murph's smiling. He's going, that sounds a lot like West Virginia. <laughs> get, get, get a hog out there. We're going to eat you, boy. Hey, hey, I wonder how you say in Chinese, you got a pretty mouth, boy. Mouth, boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to say that, well, first of all, both of us are unarmed, right? We're, we're, oh, I'm yeah. wearing a Nagra recording device in a belly band with my shirt hung over it, which was ridiculous. All you had to do was come up and touch my back and realize I was wired. Now, who does she think you are? Did, she, did you guys – I mean are we you going up, up there as – I'm sorry. I fast-forwarded too much. We set it up through informants with a series of calls out of the U.S. Attorney's Office indicating that I was an American businessman affiliated with Chris. I was going to be over there on business anyway. I had some information to give her. Maybe had some money to give her because we were, we thought they they were spooked. At one point, they were very spooked because we shut down the money trail. The money wasn't going back. So our our snitches are like, we got to get back. If you want to do something, we got to get back to these people because they're going to send people out to kill us. I said, yeah, whatever. Well, we got on a call with our main guy who we're looking to hook up with, who's in Chiang Rai, and he says, what what the what the what the fuck? He's cursing at me in half broken English on the phone, and I'm pretending to be this businessman. I'm like, yeah, what's the matter? We're coming over. We'll take care of everything. We'll get you all your money and all that stuff. Well, you can't fuck with us. I'm not, not fucking with you. We're going to be over there next week. Oh, we're gonna, hold on. My boss wants to talk to you. And he hands the phone off, and I'm expecting to hear some Asian guy fumbling through English, and it's a Brit. This is a guy in Chiang Rai, Thailand, and it's a Brit. And the, what I found out after was that 
this is all going down in a prison in Chiang Rai. The whole drug operation is being run from a prison. So my guy's in prison over there. I got pictures of him in Jeez. shackles. It was unbelievable. The Brit gets on the phone and goes, hello, I don't think you know who you're effing with, sir. We are global. We can find you in a heartbeat. We've been doing this for a long time. Don't F with me. He's going off in this stupid Brit accent. And I'm like thinking, I know I don't know much about your organization, but you have no idea who you're talking to at this moment. <laughs> or the, or the, you know, the scope of who it is that you're, okay, whatever. I just pretended to be scared and told him, I'm sorry, we'll be over there. But this was a big group. And they were moving stuff all around the world. And the, the statues were beautiful that they were making these really thin. I, I have pictures of them somewhere. But um, so that goes down. We get over there. The meeting changes. Well, back before the tactical meeting I was talking about. I'm sorry I'm skipping around. Before we went out to do the operation, we had a tactical meeting. Royal Hong Kong police has maybe a dozen of their detectives there. A few are Brits. A few are Asian. And they're, okay, you're going to be here, you're going to be there, all that kind of stuff. This is what we're doing. I had to sign this very extensive form as to what I could and couldn't do in Hong Kong. It was very strict. I had to meet with the Crown Council, which is their U.S. attorney. And you swear, you you cannot do this. You cannot, okay, you can't touch a weapon. You can't touch, okay, I'm not touching anything. I just want to go in and talk to this moron, get her on tape and get out of there and go get a drink. So I'm looking around. And they said, okay, weapons. So they all got in line and they went and they were issued a five-shot chief. Issued five rounds and a five-shot chief for the operation. I thought to myself, oh no, this is Keystone Cop time. These guys don't even know how to handle a gun. Oh, I'm screwed. Are you? Who were they issuing this to? The Royal the, Hong the Kong Royal detectives. Hong? Because they don't carry unless they need to for some kind of an operation. And the female this is your protection. Yeah, this is my this is my backup. These guys who who are all looking at the gun like it's the first time they've ever touched it, and we we looked at each other, Keith and I. We said we we better pray this goes well because we're you know we're really on our own. So so we go to the hotel. Everybody's there. All these guys are all hanging around having coffee and stuff. And I get the call, and now I'm trying to wink to them that it's changed because I don't know who's watching me. So we go to the car. We get in the cab. We get taken up this place. I'm like, where the hell are we going? We're like leaving the city. We're getting out to far reaches. I'm, I'm waiting to see a stop sign that says, welcome to, you know, uh, China. China. So we get to this housing project. We get out of the car. I look around. There's nobody there. They weren't there. Waiting. Stand outside as long as we could. We got to do it. We go upstairs. Before we put, before I turned on the recording device and I reached in my back to turn it on, before I did that, I said to Keith, I said, Keith, I got a pregnant wife at home. I got a small kid at home. We're leaving here today alive. I don't care what that takes. Whatever happens in this apartment, you if I have to throw somebody out the window, we're leaving here alive. He said, agreed, whatever it takes. Neither one of us is armed. We had no idea what was going to happen when we go in the door. Well, knock on the door. Door opens up. It's a guy. He's got what looks like a forty-five in his waistband. Now, a gun in Hong Kong is the equivalent of publicly massacring massacring the pope in vatican city it's an enormous crime the mere i don't know how he even got one it's like you, there's not a lot of that going on over there so i immediately I, I you know pucker time i'm dead he's gonna find a recorder i'm dead i don't even have backup with these keystone guys i got nothing 
He lets us in. We say hi to her. We sit down. She's got a dog that literally could have run the third race at Belmont, this enormous dog who doesn't like me. And he's, I'm sitting there and he's, I got this guy over there with the gun smoking and, and drinking coffee. He's relaxed. She doesn't even know what's going on. She just woke up. She's talking to us. She manages to talk her way into federal prison. The dog manages to not eat me. We, we excuse ourselves after about a half an hour. She handwrites a bunch of notes for us on, on the new uh, accounts for routing for the money. I thought we got everything we need. I couldn't understand anything she was saying, though, because she's talking with a very thick Hong Kong accent, which apparently to them means something. And I come out going, I don't know what we got except this handwritten note. So let's just get out of here. She's done talking. We go back to the RHKPD. Um, they never showed up. They never made it there. We were on our own, unarmed. Oh, no. Yep. And we, we got in the car. We got in a cab. We paid the guy to stay. He stayed. I couldn't believe it. And we went right back to their financial investigations group. They call it the FIG group in, in Hong Kong. Got out, sweating, ripping the belly band off, going in. I'm like, uh, have a good day, guys. You guys have a good day? Oh, yeah. Why? <laughs> the hell were you? Where the hell were you guys? Oh, we were at the Marriott. I don't know what they thought I was doing when we got in a cab and left, but they all stuck around the Marriott thinking I was going to come back. So nobody oh was there, God. but we ended up playing the tape and she effectively said, Lenny, the main subject, she said it a bunch of times because they were all, oh, this is great. Lenny will get you more. Lenny will do this. Lenny will. So we ordered up a bunch more heroin and we gave them all the stuff we had to give them. And next thing I know, they're submitting it in a court in Hong Kong. And needless to say, we went drinking that night with our DEA um, assigned agent over there, real nice girl and her husband, who was a former Denver narc. And they just took us out. We took a small junk off to Lama Island. Ate and drank all night and had a great time. And uh, it was a great experience. It really was. Let's rewind just a little bit because I want you to cover. You glossed over it, but you go, and she talked herself into federal prison. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's kind of yeah, like, and then it's like a Seinfeld episode. And then blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, and oh, then I'm so sorry. what do you mean by she? No, no, no. It's okay. What do you mean when you, I, I mean, we kind of got the idea, but give us an idea. When you say she talked herself into federal prison. Was she just forthcoming with you? She just she bought the she bought the the UC gig, right? That you guys were. She remembered who I was. Once I I reminded her, I said, "Remember me? Oh, that was you on that call. Okay, good. Okay, yeah, no problem. I'm glad you're here. Whatever." Uh, but like I said, the accent was thick. I I just pretended to understand half of what she was saying, but she did uh, admit to her part. The money is me. I move the money. Lenny will get the drugs to you. He'll have them sent from Chiang Rai. Everything she needed to say, she said. And it was conversational. It wasn't It wasn't just me probing all that hard. She just talked. I think she wanted us out of there, literally. She had that look like, oh, can I get this over with? Get out of here. And I was happy to get out of there at that point. Um, yeah, but actually everything she gave us was enough for her to be charged and held locally. And I actually have the news strip from the South China Morning Post, the newspaper, the next day. They had a small article. Well, not the next day, but two days later, they – did the arrests and there was two corrupt Hong Kong cops involved with this organization too. So they, this financial group was allegedly watching us and providing us security at our hotel. They weren't anywhere. Um, but yeah, these, these two cops got locked up there too. It was, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, they actually... You mean the two that were supposed to be helping you? No, no, just two uniformed, one sergeant, one cop from the from what, what was at the time in 94 was called the Royal Hong Kong Police. They were involved with this group, providing protection um, and doing, I guess, a variety of other things, steering people away from them. But they, uh, it, it, finding that out was like, oh my God. So they did wiretaps for us. I didn't even realize this until I got over there. They did local wiretaps the Royal Hong Kong police for this case for months. And they had stacks of line sheets from, from the warrants, from monitoring the, the, um, the phones. And we saw that. I called the U.S. attorney. The U.S. attorney was like, uh, I didn't know they were doing that, but okay, great. Can you get copies? So I asked for copies of everything to be shipped back for use in U.S. court if we needed it. Well, I learned something about China and Hong Kong the hard way, which is that you can ask for something. It doesn't mean just because they tell you, yes, yes, you're going to get it. Yes, yes usually means no. <laughs> One yes means hell no. Um, they'll never say no to you because it's bad face. So they'll say yes, yes. So the day before we're leaving, Keith and I are at the photo machine. They wouldn't stop us copying stacks of line sheets, wrapping them up and having them sent you know, by mail through the DEA office. It's like ridiculous. Um, now, had it was crazy. translated into English already? Uh, they were. They did all wow. that. They did all of that. It was remarkable how much work they had done for us, and they, they didn't even mention it to us. I was like, what's that? Oh, we monitored phones for you. You monitored phones for us. <laughs> like it was an afterthought. <laughs> you know, eavesdropping weren't like it's an afterthought. It, it was It was a crazy, it was an amazing experience. The uh, The local office, the Rich Lamagna, who was the legal attache in Hong Kong, was uh, a great guy. They kind of uh, hosted us at, at uh, that Friday afternoon at a little gathering they had, and they, they sort of called us out for what we did, which was nice. And, and then the next day, the last day we were there before we left was the Royal Hong Kong Rugby Sevens Tournament, which is seven-man team 20-minute matches from 150-something countries at this wow. huge outdoor Hong Kong stadium, 80-something thousand people. They gave us tickets and said, go enjoy yourselves. So it's 10 in the morning to late at night, 10 hours of rugby which to us meant 10 hours of drinking because we didn't know anything about rugby except <laughs> That's it's what kind that means of to every rug, rugby fan in the world. Well, then I was in good company. So <laughs> That's right. <laughs> T- Team USA came out. They were there, and we were the only two Americans in the stand because we're screaming, yeah, like the ugly American. And there's 80,000 uh, Australians and New Zealanders, Kiwis, and they're all screaming, yeah. oh, see, Kiwi, oh, see, Kiwi. And then two drunk knucklehead Americans screaming, but it was a blast. It was just a great time. Oh, you know, so we got to point something out here, though. So here's a New York City cop and a New York DEA agent in frickin' Hong Kong working undercover, which, you know, I can't even imagine what – you probably didn't have the hoops to jump through that like you do nowadays or while I was still back on the job. But you're going in with a protection detail that – you know, they're trying to figure out which end the, do the bullets go into the end of this barrel and then lodge down in the chamber? Or how does this thing work? And then, you know, I mean, we, <laughs> you talk about a Hummer, every drug deal is the same. She's not there. Then she calls, oh, the plans have changed. You got to come here now. Yeah. And you guys get up and walk out. I, how did you walk out with balls of steel like that? Did they just drag along behind you? You know, because I, this I, is unbelievable what you're saying. The, the, I, I want to listen. And the reason I'm saying this, I'm not being funny. The the amount of danger you, you know, if we I can't even explain how much danger you guys were in there. 
you know, you're kind of glossing over it. You're being humble about what you did, your role and everything. But, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I, I've faced a lot of danger in my life. I'm not sure I've faced anything where I didn't have the backup like you faced. Well, th- thank you for saying that. I, I honestly think at the time, my mindset, I was very determined as a detective. If If I had a case on you, I would chase you to the ends of the earth. As a matter of fact, we identified a guy from the gang, the White Tigers, who had done a homicide that was in Hong Kong, and we found him and had him extradited uh, because I just wouldn't give up. I did phone records for months to find where he might have been calling from and to and girlfriends, and I was that guy. I, I, I was determined. I had traveled that far. I had worked this case for a year and a half to two years already. Um, I'm getting you. You're, you're going to be in an American prison. That's it. Uh, I'm not failing. Once I'm, I'm not going to go, oh, I can't go, it's too dangerous. The whole thing was was just, to me, it was just the thing I had to do, you know? And um, I, I guess it, da- it dawned on me later how stupid it was <laughs> in certain ways, you know, or yeah, how risky it was. It's the dedication to the job. That's, uh, that's, that's what law enforcement does. I mean, people think Javier and I were stupid and crazy for what we did. I think you're crazy for what you did. I know you think I'm crazy for what we did. But, Absolutely. You know? That's the extent, that's the dedication of professional law enforcement personnel. That's, we'll go to whatever extent it takes to help protect the citizens of our country. And people may scoff at that and laugh at it, especially in today's, you know, anti-police, let defund the police, and all that bullshit that's going on. But I just, I love that you just told that story, man, because it just, that's a perfect example of what professional law enforcement in the United States is willing to do for our fellow Americans. So, all you police haters out there, you're listening to the wrong damn podcast. I'm telling you mm-hmm. right now. <laughs> and you know, you know, there's a lot more who who did more than me, and and you know that as well. I, but coming from you, that's high praise, Murph. I really appreciate that. But it was, um, like I said at the time, I, I was tunnel vision. I'm 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 not leaving here without accomplishing my objectives. That's it. Yep. Guys, I, I hate to tell you this. The most dangerous part of the operation was none of what you talked about. You know what the most dangerous part of the operation was? Getting on the boat. <laughs> Having that. <laughs> No, having that Nagra recorder next to the family Nards for that long. <laughs> that was the most dangerous part of the operation. I thought you were going to say it's two Americans in that, in that rugby match with all the Kiwis. And oh, the my God. In there. They take this no, stuff no, no, serious. They're, they're actually good. Those guys are just, you know, they have such a, a different view of life. They're like, it's all good, mate. You know, it's, it's no worries, you know. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you cause problems, you're a wanker. You know, it's like, no, they got it all figured out. I'm just sitting here thinking, though, how warm did that Nagra <laughs> Get. I mean, because you're in Hong Kong, it's already warm, and you got this warm little technology next to the family jewels. Well, uh, I will leave it at this and say that when I got back, I bought one, and I, I enjoy it. <laughs> say, say that again. What? When I'm I, not sure I got that right it's, either. It's a joke. When I got back, I bought one, and I still enjoy it. You know. Okay. Oh, you're a sick man. Okay, let's go. <laughs> you went there. I, I don't know if you guys want to reel back the tape, but I said it was in the small of my back like twice. So the mere fact uh, that you envisioned it being down near my Willie J is is on you. That's, that's okay. Well, you, you did nothing. You, know, you said you turned it on in the small of your back. I'm thinking there's the switch there. I didn't know you had it in the small. I thought you said you had it taped to your leg or something. No, nah, they put it in the that's small of the back. That's so where Morgan likes to wear his. He likes the vibration <laughs> that goes along with it. <laughs> Hey, whatever floats your boat, right? At this point, there you go. Don't ask, don't tell. Hey, can you can you speak into the microphone again for me, please? <laughs> oh, boy, we're going down That's real not quick. A microphone. Okay. Anyway. 
Oh, no. Oh, so many jokes we could go with that. All right. Well, cool. Hey, well, look, last thing I wanted to end up with then, too, is uh, that that one was before this next case we're going to talk about. That was, you said, when, 94? That was 94. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, so and a few- let's talk about this next one. It, and the name I thought was pretty cool. I mean, but it's a homis- It's a murder. It's a kidnapping called King of Clubs. Sure. So you're back from your tour in Hong Kong. You survived, uh, you know, the Royal Hong Kong Police. And, hey, can I interrupt um, you, you just, made- just for a second? I'm sorry. No, you can't. But I'm sorry, you can't. Because I highlighted this in the notes that, that you'd sent us, Murph. Um, and it's where the guy was going to kill the kid and he goes to court and he screws up and makes a statement in front of his wife. Oh, yeah. That was part of the flip case, too. The guy that actually hired my informant to kill the his sister, husband, and kid, we locked him up. His name was Gary Suki Tam. I can say it. He's already been convicted and done his time. Gary Suki Tam hired these guys to do that. And I ended up locking him up on the flimsiest in certain ways, just on the word of the informant and a couple of other very small corroborative pieces. But the U.S. attorney went for the indictment. We arrested him. And just around the holidays comes a time when the U.S. attorney's office wants to clear calendars and they get generous. So our informant was down in a rubber room in North Carolina trying to burn his testicles. He he was insane. And he was going to be no use to us on the stand. So the U.S. attorney picks up the phone and calls defense counsel about a week before Christmas and says, your client makes me want to take a shower every time I think of this folder. He's disgusting. I won't let him cooperate, but I will offer him a plea. And rather than do the rest of his life in prison, well, because we had, we really didn't have a case except a cooperator and nobody could tell if he was going to be able to come into a courtroom and be coherent. So he agrees. Now, negotiations go back and forth on what he's going to allocute to. What will he admit he did? And he de- we decide uh, he will admit that he hired the gang to go there and scare his family, and the gang decided on their own to kill him. At which point, I'm looking at the U.S. attorney. I said, you know what? He's going to take 15 federal years, which is a flat 15. I don't care what he says. doesn't matter to me. So they bring this guy in. He doesn't speak in English. He comes in to allocute. His wife is eight months pregnant sitting in the front row of the, of the uh, federal courthouse, federal courtroom. And he gets up there and he's speaking through an interpreter. I hired the gang to go over and scare. And the interpreter says, go over and scare. He says, and kill, and kill. So he admitted to hiring them to kill him. And his whole family was there and they heard it in Chinese and then in English. And they all flipped out because they had believed him the whole time that he didn't mean to kill the sister. But the family had ostracized the sister. They stood by the the boy. Mm Mm-hmm. Which was um, and now and now the truth comes out. The truth came out in the courtroom. The wife flipped out, was screaming at him. Had to call an ambulance for the wife. He just had his head down. He realized I just screwed up. <laughs> I just admitted to this. It was it was perfect. It was like the truth tape? comes out. Yeah, can we rewind that tape and redact yeah. that last statement? <laughs> oh, I got a quick. Hey. You got to hear the Mikey D. Oh, that was one of those things where you get done, the attorney goes, oops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to hear the Mikey D one, part of that case as well. Mikey D is the associate of the mafia family in Queens who is just at a, at a central casting, tough talking, gravelly voice, steroid guy. He's moving all this dope. Uh, he's involved in every other scandal. Bring him in. Federal court, federal probation. He's got to talk with the probation officer. Well, first of all, we bring him in for questioning, and he doesn't want to. He calls himself, I'm the last 
Can I say effing? I'm the last friggin' Viking. I don't give nobody up. I don't give nobody. I know everything. I wouldn't tell you nothing. You got nothing on me. Yes, famous last words. I said, Mikey, uh, I, I, I had a picture that one of the informants had given us of Mikey wearing a little schoolgirl dress in prison. Because apparently that was his his thing. And I slid it across the table. I said, Mike, this is going to be an embarrassing trial. You might want to cooperate. My wife knows I'm nuts. Now, I don't know if she knows how much you like nuts, but she may know you're nuts. Okay, Mike. So Mike decides not, Ooh, he decides not, burn. He decides not to cooperate, of course. So the next morning, I pull him out in uh, 150 Park Row at the MCC. I pull him out to bring him upstairs for uh, for his magistrate's hearing and for federal probation. He's got to answer all these questions about his availability for bail. And what, part of that is a urine test. So I have to be a witness. I walk in the bathroom. It's cold. It's winter time, and it's cold in the bathroom. And probation officer walks in with me. Mikey stands in front of the urinal, and Mikey's like our steroid guy. So he takes up all the space, and he gives Mikey the thing, and Mikey takes it, puts the cap on it, gives it back to the probation officer, who looks at him and says, Mr. Mister D, really? He goes, Detective, would you mind touching this? It was like 40 degrees. Like you'd be dead for a week by the time your urine was that cold. <laughs> he scooped it down and took out of the bottom of the urinal. It was water formed down there. He took it. What are you talking about? He gets all, that's my urine. Call me a liar. He gets crazy. <laughs> okay, Mike, this is, this is your urine sample. No problem. Well, he goes into the courtroom. Obviously, he was a, a drug user. He goes into the courtroom, sits down. Federal probation officer gets up, and, and, and the judge asked her. And the results of the urinalysis, uh, he failed positive for opiates. Mike stands up and screams, how the fuck did that happen in the courtroom? <laughs> Mike had the misfortune of scooping up water out of a urinal that had heroin in it. The guy before him was positive for opiates and didn't flush. That's when you know you're on a bad luck streak. He couldn't make that one up. Just put me on death row. Just put me on death row. I gotta go. <laughs> the look on his face was classically, how the fuck did that yeah, that's like the one story we did, Murph, for Small Town Police Blotter, I think it was. The guy was charged with burglary or robbery or something, you know, and the guy says, and he's standing there in front of the judge. He goes, there's no way she could see me. I had a mask on. <laughs> oh, yeah, God. We don't always get the smartest criminals. <laughs> thank, thank God they're stupid, I used to say. I made a lot of overtime of stupid. Oh, no, that's fantastic. Right, sorry. For stupid, a lot of us wouldn't be able to pay our mortgage. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Sorry we slid backwards there, but those are, just, those are excellent stories. No, we had to no, hear that. Was, look, it's, it's good. now, did you ever get to introduce the picture of Mikey in his little dress? I, I can't comment on that. Um, Why, you can't or you won't? No, There's a difference. no, he, he, ended up, uh, he ended up taking a plea. It's funny how that works. Yeah. I'm not going to – now, did he did he end up cooperating no, and uh, providing – he did not cooperate. I can say that. Okay. No. I tell you, the FBI was all over us like, he's got to cooperate. Well, if you want to talk to him, knock yourself out, but I'm done with him. Well, he's – watch out for him, though. He's a Viking. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't rat on anybody. <laughs> I don't give nobody up. My last Viking. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> he was a Until character. they do. Yeah, so exactly. You wanted to segue, and I'm going to help you make it maybe easier, go into the King of Clubs case. and Because it was just a few months later that I went over to the Major K-Squad, and I uh, decided to become a quote-unquote real detective and wear a suit. Uh, and the way that I got into the Major K-Squad was because of my work with the Asians and the RICO cases I had done in the Southern District. 
uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office knew the captain, the commanding officer of the Major K Squad, pretty well. And the Major K Squad at the time was being hit with probably 50 to 55 Asian kidnappings a year. And Major K Squad had under its purview any kidnapping for ransom in New York City was a Major K Squad case. And at the time, we we're doing 50 to 55 of them and a lot of gang related, a lot of alien smuggling. So the fact that I had done so much work in the Asian community in New York and, and really had a, f- a foothold on who the gang members were, what the crews were, where they hung out, um, I was I was primed to be of assistance to the unit at the time because they really didn't have a – they had a few people who were good at it, but they could always use more. And so uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office made a call to the captain, uh, arranged for me to meet him over lunch. I talked with him, and, and I got assigned up there, and it was it – was, it was a really, really interesting move for me because I had about 10 years with the department and the average guy there was 20, 25, 30 because uh, it was a really prestigious elite place to work where you had to be an expert in what you were doing. Uh, and we handled complex cases. Um, anytime a cop was killed in New York City, Major Case Squad worked alongside the detective squad to ensure that it was done right. The Major Case Squad was formed in response to the assassinations of police officers in the early 70s in New York City as a way of coordinating and having some of the best experienced detectives in homicides working on cop homicides to ensure what we like to do, which is have a um, an arrest before the funeral for the family. Hey. Now, could, did you guys have the authority then when a case happened? I mean, was it part of your remit to say, hey, look, major case uh, squad, we're taking this one over because of its high profile or meets a certain criteria? Or did you have to get the cooperation of the uh, uh, commanders, you know, out of the precinct? How did that work when you took, when you quote, took over a case? Yeah, we, well, we had a, like our mandate. Major case squad handles and, and the NYPD detective squad uh, bureau, there are certain units that this is your mandate. If it's this type of a case, it's, it's referred to you, you take it. The precinct detective squads don't do kidnappings for ransom. They all have to get transferred to us. Uh, so certain cases were ours as our case, certain cases we worked alongside, uh, but, but they were never going to be our case. Uh, anybody who gets killed anywhere in New York city, that case belongs to the detective from that precinct local area detective squad who catches it. Homicide task force, us, anybody else comes in and helps and works on it, but it's that guy's case. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's kind of similar to robbery homicide, you know, in LAPD. When we talk to LAPD guys, they kind of one of those things, they're a centralized resource, certain purview over certain kinds of crimes, and they would go out. But that's the same thing. That was you wanted to be on RHD the same way you wanted to be on the major case squad. That right. if you're going to be in investigations, that was the ultimate um, thing to shoot for. Right. So I, I had gotten assigned there, and it was it was a real eye-opening experience for me because I was working with some people who I learned so much from, and I I just opened my eyes and shut my mouth as much as I could. And I started working on kidnappings, which for me were, uh, it's a unique case because you got a live victim out there. And if you screw something up, you know, almost like an undercover operation, you screw it up, you can get somebody killed. And that's the goal is to, I mean, I worked on a hundred and probably 125 kidnappings in my time there. Uh, they were most of them were not my case, but I worked on them. The whole group works on them. And, uh, we had one victim killed. And that one victim was shot during the actual apprehension, during the uh, abduction, because he resisted. Uh, but they still negotiated as though he were alive because they wanted the money. But went there and actually um, had worked quite a few of them, was still working RICO cases in the Southern District on flying dragons, Fukunese flying dragons, all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, working these kidnapping cases, the um, there, was a, there was three kidnappings that took place 
in August of 1995 in New York City, two of which got reported to the NYPD and two different detectives in my unit had them as a case. They were Asians. Uh, we, we had no idea if they were related at all, just two individuals were taken. And there were no ransom demands made, at least here, that we knew of. The cases were stagnant for a week or two. Well, it turns out these two plus another individual had been kidnapped by the same gang. They were called the uh, Plum Blossom uh, group, whatever they were, a subset of the Fukunese Flying Dragons, uh, which Fukunese. Plum Fuji Blossom, is, boy, that, that instills fear in me when I hear that. The Plum, Blo Plum Blossom gang coming yeah, after you. Th these were not nice guys. Um, we had, um, as I mentioned, we had the three cases. We had two people whose families had um, reported to the police, and as a result, those reports became major case squad cases, each assigned to different detectives. The third individual, their family, as is fairly common, we never knew how many real kidnappings we had in New York because a lot of times the families never reported it for fear of coming to the police, especially in the Asian community. So these cases are sitting stagnant until all of a sudden all hell breaks loose one night. What happens is a fire department, uh, fire department gets a call for a small fire in a basement apartment in Brooklyn, and they get there, and it's tons of smoke, and there's a woman wrapped up in duct tape like a cocoon, laying on the ground screaming in Chinese, and there's another woman dead with a uh, plastic bag over her head, stab wounds, hung around her neck from a exercise bench and she's and her skull was kind of crashed in by a television set they don't know what they have the squad gets there they identify the woman before long it becomes uh, clear that uh, one of these people is our kidnapping one of our kidnap cases the story unravels at the same time uh, uh, the third victim that was in that apartment is left off a highway on the Queens-Nassau uh, County border, thrown out of a car, shot in the head, left there to die, but the bullet hits his skull, travels around it, merely gives him a, knocks him out a bit, gives him a heck of a headache. He wakes up, staggers out in front of traffic, almost gets hit by a truck, causes accidents, causes this crazy scene on the highway, all going on at the same time, both these events. Unravel the story, we find out. These three victims have been taken by the same crew, these Plum Blossom guys, and they brought them to this apartment, held them there, and for about a week, they used them uh, as their playthings. They made them do unspeakable things to each other. I won't even tell you. I don't care how many cops are on. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be said, the things that these people were made to do. It was horrible. Beaten, abused, was this Was this just because these folks were just mean, or are they trying to send a message? Is it retribution? What what would lead someone to do something like that? They're just sadistic. Now, they, they were holding these folks for kidnapping for ransom, and they're reaching out to their families trying to get money. And some of them, some of these victims are targeted. They'll know, for example, that the family has a restaurant. Okay, well, they can go to the bank and they can borrow against the restaurant, or they can sell a car. Um, but they want to get the money. And if the family is hesitating or taking their time, or even if it takes more than a day or two, you'll get a, a 19, 20 year old gang member who's five foot four, 115 pounds, thinks he's tough, has control over a woman and he's bored and he'll rape her or he'll make her do this or that. And they do it all the time. They were doing it all the time. What they would do was pretty savage. It was nasty. 
But what, um, what, what size uh, uh, ransoms are they asking for? Generally, typically, it started out at thirty-eight thousand. For some reason, that was their number: thirty-eight thousand dollars in ransom. Now, that's a lot of money to a lot of people. Uh, but um, if you had a business and you could liquidate it quickly, or it's funny how they did it uh, when it was somebody in a, in China that they called for the money because they didn't want a ransom drop to take place in America because we were like batting a thousand on ransom drops. You showed up to pick up the money, you expose yourself. We would jump you. And and so and if you weren't the main guys at the scene, we would flip you very quickly and get you to give up where it was, whether it be through your phone or beeper, we'd figure it out, or we would have enhanced interrogation in a stateside, so to speak, you know, very spirited interrogation where you would become cooperative very quickly and decide your best interest lay in helping us. But they brought these people down there. They did this crazy stuff to them. They were holding off for ransom. His family, well, the one woman who was dead, her family just didn't have the money. So they killed her. They killed her four different ways. They stabbed her. They strangled her. They asphyxiated her. They put the, the, the plastic bag over her head so she couldn't breathe. And then they crashed her skull in with a big television set. So she's left hanging there. And then they took the other woman whose family was taking their time getting money, or they felt they were. She's wrapped up in duct tape lying right next to her. And they said to her, we're going to take him out and kill him because his family's too slow. Then we're going to go party. And if you look at the clock on the wall, it's 10 o'clock. We'll be back by 5 o'clock in the morning to kill you too. So she's sitting there. She's laying there. And she she decides, I can barely move, but I have to do something to live. She crawls over, finds a newspaper with her mouth, manages to throw it up on top of a stove, and with her mouth again, manages to turn the stove on and start a fire. With that, the smoke alerted somebody who called 911 and the fire department came. So now now the game is on. We, we get rallied. We're going to try to find these people. Uh, the crime scene is gruesome. The guy that's shot in the head comes forward. I go out and meet him at a hospital. I show him some pictures. He identifies some people who he might know. That might be him. That might be him. He just got shot in the head. It's hard to tell. You know, the guy's, you know, woozy to say the least after a week of torture. But we have to start somewhere. So we start letting our informants know we're working like crazy around the clock doing this and that. And then we find out through our phone work that at the very same time, as our kidnapping was going down, a kidnapping was going down in Seattle that the FBI had handled. And the same, this is in the days of calling card numbers to make international calls. The same calling card numbers were used in Seattle and New York to call victims' families over in China. So the FBI had that information, we had it, and they had made three or two arrests out in Seattle. And now, is that how you found out about the case in Seattle? I mean, you're in New York and that's Seattle. So how do you find out about a case that's happening all the way across the U.S.? We had some of the best phone guys, per se, you could ever find. And we found out in our investigation when we looked through phone records very quickly um, that that single specific phone uh, key, whatever it was, that, that, allowed, that code that allowed you to make an international call had been also used out of Seattle. So we called up the Seattle Police Department. They said the FBI had a kidnapping. We called the FBI. They said, yeah, we made arrests, an Asian one. I said, we got one too, same number. So myself and another guy flew out to Seattle. We get this information. We fly out to Seattle. We go out there to meet with them. And our goal is to talk to the two perps and get them to cooperate enough to tell us who your knucklehead friends in New York because you know we're after them. Well, we get out there and it's a whole nother story about um, how the FBI made the arrests and what they missed, and I won't go into it, but uh, make a long story short, we come back with a little bit of information. 
everybody's working around the clock trying to unravel this mystery. And the next thing we know, the guy that I was out in Seattle with turns to me and says, they're in LA. I said, how do you know they're in LA? I have a snitch in LA. Okay. Yeah. They're staying at my snitch's apartment in LA. I said, the guys that did this are staying. Yeah. They're bragging about it because it hit the newspaper big because when they killed the woman, they wrote a note in Chinese saying, we are plum blossom, whatever. You'll never catch us calling us the white devil. And they stuck it down her shirt. So they were taunting us. Well, the media picked up on that in New York. And at the same time, there was a lot of political infighting going on in the police department about um, there was a unit that was run by Jack Maple that wanted the case because it was high profile. My CO didn't want to give up the case because we did kidnappings. This is way above my pay grade. But nonetheless, there was a lot of fighting going on and a lot of pressure for us to make the arrests. If you don't make the arrests within this time, it's going to go to that group. And so my, my commanding officer was like, who is, who is that other group? So, so you're still the major case squad, right? Right. The deputy commissioner for crime control strategies at the time was a guy named Jack Maple and a very famous guy in law enforcement. He uh, looked like the monopoly money man, uh, wore the spats and everything, but he's the guy that ushered in comps that and all that stuff. And he, he was a very, very sharp guy and he had his own group of investigators and he wanted to take the case because it was very high profile. And he was very close with the police commissioner at the time was Bill Bratton. And my captain, who worked for the chief of detectives, who was on the outs with the police commissioner, it was all political. So they wanted to make us look bad and make themselves look good at the same time by solving the case. Well, my captain turns to us and is basically like, guys, and this is how we talk. We haven't got much time here. Ah, the guy's got Was he related to Mikey, the guy in prison? It must have all been from the same. <laughs> I can do like three impersonations. Was he too? <laughs> well, is this- I don't know. Your your British impression left a lot to be desired. That's all I'm going to say, man. Uh, yeah. yours. <laughs> I'm lucky I can do. It. I can, I can't even speak English. I'm from Queens. It's the second language. But Queens. Queens. What happened is, um, finally. You know, we go out to California because my my partner, Billy, tells me that the uh, guys are at his his snitch's apartment. And we get out there in the middle of the night. I mean, like, it's no waste. We get the information. My captain looks at us and goes, what are you doing here? Get on a plane now. So we, we run to JFK with the clothes we have on us, and we, we fly out into the night. And we walk into a police agency in the middle of the night. I think it was Alhambra or Monterey Park. And we just said, uh, yeah, we got some guys here we need to grab. They're in your municipality. And, and they're like, well, who are you? <laughs> it's like two o'clock in the morning. There's one guy sitting on a desk. He's like, no, we need people. And we ended up doing uh, some work for a day or two and, and grabbing. Uh, we found out where the apartment was. We went there with, I think it was the LA Sheriff's guys too, and they were great. And it was this little like Melrose Place kind of series of outdoor apartments that that's in circle like a pool. And so we go there. It's like five o'clock in the morning and we, we bang on the door. And uh, they won't open. So we bang on the door again. Finally, we just like kicked the door. It was, wasn't a very big door. And there's two guys in the apartment. And one of them is sitting there. And he's got 17 sets of identification from people they have kidnapped before laid out on the floor with credit, everything. It's almost like he set the evidence up for us. He's sitting on the floor. And he gets up. And what does he do? He does the crane. You ever see that karate kid? <laughs> yeah. Now, he's maybe 5'3". He's maybe 120. I'm 6'3", about 2'10 at the time, pissed off, tired, no patience for this crap. He gets up and does the crane to me, to which point I introduced him to my fist and his nose joined his ear someplace. But I was like, you got to be kidding me. 
You gotta be kidding me with the crane. That's the best he got. Yeah, you <laughs> wax on, wax off. I, I hit him so hard I almost felt bad for him. He jumps uh, his buddy jumps out the back bedroom window of the apartment into a tree, falls down, hits the ground, gets a compound fracture of his leg, and is trying to drag himself away before the LA sheriffs jumped him. So we got two of the five guys in this apartment. And the food is still hot on the stove. Everything's there. The other three went out to get booze and cigarettes. And they pulled up and saw us and took off. So the first two get caught. The other three take off. We bring these knuckleheads in. One guy goes to the hospital. We're debriefing. We're trying to get information. They won't tell us anything. They're just sitting there. Um, Next thing you know, it's like, all right. We have a bunch of information here. We now have what we believe to be cell phones or beepers of these guys. At the, that is 94. I believe it was beepers, actually, believe it or not. So how, how do we find them? Well, again, we turned to our phone guys. And, and the unit I was in, a 9-11, Taru, had great phone guys. So we called them. We said, here's what we need. We need you to set up a phone number with a Chinatown extension that looks like a Chinatown phone number. And we're going to beep these guys. And we knew from their beeping habits that they would beep 888 888, which meant opportunity to make a lot of money, call me immediately. That was their code. We knew it. So we set this phone number up. And several hours later, they call back, and it's from a Super 8 motel in Milpitas, California, near San Jose. So that's where our knuckleheads are. So now we got to get up to Milpitas, California. So we call the Milpitas. We haven't slept like two hours in 10 days now. We call the Milpitas Police Department in the middle of the night. We're like, uh, yeah, we have a six o'clock flight. We're going to be getting there at 7.15 or whatever from, from LA. And we, this is what we need. And so they surrounded the hotel. We get up to there. There's a briefing. Now we're exhausted. We look like hell. My lieutenant is a character who's smoking everywhere, and they keep telling him to put the cigarettes out in the police station in California because it's so pristine. And whenever he puts one out, he puts it out on the carpet just to piss them off. We were the ugly American. <laughs> we're like, we're like, we just want these idiots. They're in your hotel over here. Thank you for surrounding it. And they did this big briefing, and they got everybody in there, and they're all excited, and they're like, okay, we know they're in there right now, and we're going to go get them. And so my lieutenant goes, excuse me, how do you know they're in there? Well, when we got the call from you, we surrounded the hotel and no one's left. He goes, okay, no one's left, but how do you know they're in there? And the room was dead quiet because you don't know they're in there. (laughs) All you know is nobody's left. Don't tell me they're in there. So we go over there and we're sitting there and we're all ready to hit the place. And all of a sudden the city attorney gets on the phone and says, I don't know that we have enough probable cause to hit that door. At which point it's going back and forth. Now I'm falling asleep and and my lieutenant looks at me and there's three of us, four of us all together from the NYPD. He says, let's go. We get out of the car. We start walking up to the door to hit it and they got embarrassed. So they ran past us and hit the door. And they were great guys, but it was their city attorney was just saying, no, I don't know. Might get sued. Uh, These guys killed people. They kidnapped people in New York. We checked with the front desk. That's the room that they're in. Uh, if nobody's there, nobody's there, but if they're there, we make an arrest. So they put the foot through the door and the battering ram. And one of the idiots, it's always funny what people do under pressure. He runs into the bathroom and closes the door as if, as though they're not going to look in the bathroom. (laughs) That's that, that is the, if you want to escape in a closed room, the best thing to do is to run into a bathroom, even farther inside the place, hide behind the shower curtain and nobody can spot you. It's a proof. It's proven. It's fact. Or I had people that used to close their eyes because if they couldn't see me, I couldn't see them. (laughs) 
<laughs> you can't make that it works on the subway. It doesn't work on an arrest. The hostage yeah. defense. <laughs> so we brought these guys in, and we ended up uh, charging them with 17. We went federal with 17 kidnappings, uh, the murder. Um, nasty group of guys. Yeah, that was that was a great – I was very satisfied by that case. I ended up uh, uh, flying home out of San Jose a day or two later, and I was really tired. And I hadn't seen my family much. I had been out to Seattle, back, L.A., now, Milpitas, but I just hadn't been home, and I had small kids at home. I just wanted to get home. I didn't have any clothes. So the only place to buy was some all-night store that had, like, Levi's. I bought a Levi's T-shirt, Levi's pair of jeans, and I get on the plane coming back, and the flight attendant straps in looking at me. She goes, what, do you work for Levi's? I said, no, no, I don't work for Levi's. I'm, I'm all tired. She goes, uh, where are you from, New York? Going home? I said, yeah. She goes, what kind of work do you do? And I couldn't even talk. I was so tired. But I handed her the New York Times because it had a big article on the arrests. I said, this is what I'm doing here. And she went, that's you? You guys did that? I said, yeah. She goes, oh, my God. So I left the plane with two big gift bags of wine and cookies <laughs> and toys and little airplanes. I went wow. home like a girl. I walked in the door. I was like, oh, you brought stuff for everybody? Yeah, I did. Okay. But it was really it – was, <laughs> yeah. it was actually satisfying. It was nice. It was one of those times when, when somebody in the public like took a look and was like – I want to do something nice for you. So I, I really appreciate that moment, you know, but that is so that was a unusual. Great case. A lot of people worked their tails off on it. It was, it was fun though. I mean, we, we were running down leads. We're running down leads and putting our foot, foot feet through doors in California. We had no legal authority whatsoever. Flesh and shields in people's faces, throwing them on. Walls. Like, I mean, we were just going to get this guy. I don't care. We're going to get these guys. We're going to find them and get out of the way. Well, you're going to get him for two reasons. Number one, you want the caller. Number two, you don't want Maple and his gang getting the case, right? We ended up making the last arrests something like an hour to an hour and a half before the deadline. And yeah. the chief of detectives called this hotel room we all gathered in. And he said, dinner and drinks are on me, fellas. Bring me the bill when you get done. So we went wow. out and made sure we spent this money. But uh, he was so happy because he got a chance to call the police commissioner and tell him we made the arrest, and the commissioner just hung up on him. Click, you know. Again, above my pay grade, but it was. Yeah. I, I looked him up on. Uh, I, I just googled him here real quick. You're right. He does look like the Monopoly money man. <laughs> He's a very smart guy. He ushered in a lot of new stuff in policing, but it was a it was a politics game above my pay. But it was interesting. We were under a lot of pressure with that case. Unbelievable. Yeah, you know, I, I, I feel your pain not in that way, not not in a big case like that. But, uh, Steve, you'll know this because uh, Lou lives down in Savannah, Georgia, mm -hmm. which is where they film Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And I went down there for a conference one time. I was supposed to speak first thing in the morning. I get in at 1 o'clock in the morning. The airline has lost my luggage. You know what it's like at the fucking Walmart in Savannah, Georgia <laughs> at 3 o'clock in the morning trying to buy a suit? <laughs> to wear for nine o'clock the next morning you're looking good <laughs> you got a pretty mouth boy what are you doing down here <laughs> the suit did not fit that's all i can say man the suit did not fit but i'll tell you one thing i had i had clean underwear that's all that mattered you're right and socks clean socks oh my god <laughs> i didn't even have clean socks but i had clean underwear oh, so god. oh man Okay, uh, so re real quick, just to, to go back, the Major K Squad, one of the most memorable things about that unit to me, uh, Captain, a guy named George Duke, who I got along great with, was a character, and he had a very distinct way of talking. And my partner, John O'Boyle, is an incredibly naturally funny person who could be a comedian and who imitates Duke to a T, to a T. 
He does things. I'll give you an example. Story. True story. Chief of Detective's office would call down. We need Captain Duke up here in 20 minutes. Duke, uh, O'Boyle would answer the phone. Captain Duke. Yeah, we need you up here in 20 minutes for a meeting. Okie dokie. He'd hang up the phone and not tell the captain. So the captain wouldn't go to the meeting, and the chief would come down saying, where the fuck were you? <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? But the best, oh, damn. the best time he ever imitated him was a guy came into the office, a guy named Eddie, who was a long-standing seasoned detective expert in, in a lot of things, comes in out of the Brooklyn office, walks around. He's a conspiratorial guy. What's going on? What do you hear? All this kind of stuff. And we're sitting there, oh, nothing, nothing much, you know? And so uh, Eddie goes over by the front front desk area where the rest logs are and the main phone line is, and John goes, watch this. He runs into one of the back offices. He picks up the phone. He calls the front desk, and he hears, uh, Major Case, Detective, whatever. And John says, uh, hey, Eddie, how you doing? He goes, oh, good, Captain. How's it going? Eddie, I need you to do me a favor. He goes, sure, Captain. Anything. He goes, I need you to go fuck yourself. And he hangs the phone up. <laughs> <laughs> to which Eddie nearly drops a load in his pants. He almost shits himself because he can't believe <laughs> the captain just said that to him. <laughs> well, <laughs> he comes over to us, Eddie, and he's white. He's like, like hyperventilating. We're like, what's the matter, Eddie? I had no idea John did this. John goes, Eddie, what's wrong? He goes, you're not going to believe what just happened. I, I can't believe it. John goes, what? He goes, the captain just told me to go fuck myself. So now I, I understand what happens very clearly. I know just, John just did it. And we tell, we now we're egging Eddie on. Don't take that shit from him. When he comes in, confront him. Go in his office and tell him. You can't talk to me that way. I'm a grown man. Who the hell do you think you talk? So Duke comes right. in from, you know, from a night of being Duke, having drinks or whatever. He comes in, hey, how you doing here? He knows nothing about it. He walks into his office and we're pushing Eddie. Eddie goes in. John and I grab our notebooks and run for the freaking elevator. We got to get out of there. <laughs> we get to the elevator. We're hitting the button, hitting the button, hitting the button. As this is happening, Eddie walks in. Hey, Captain, uh, just wondering, uh, you know, what did I do? What do you mean, Eddie? <laughs> I don't know why you're talking to me that way. Eddie, what the hell are you talking about? You just told me to go fuck myself. Captain goes, oh, boy, oh, <laughs> <laughs> he knows it's <laughs> We're in the elevator, gone. We come, we come back in later, and John's a little sheepish, and the captain walks over, looks at him, and gives him the finger. Come here. Come here. You, come here. Pulls him into his office. They close the door. He comes out 10 minutes later. <laughs> John comes back over and goes, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> he told me, enough. Stop imitating me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see the series Band of Brothers? I've seen a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, excellent. There's this one part where one of the guys, uh, one of the privates in the company, can do in a perfect imitation of the colonel, <laughs> and so they've got they're out there doing maneuvers. And Captain Sobel says, "Watch this, Captain Sobel, what are you doing?" <laughs> he hears this voice from there. Get your people on the move, and it was just it reminded me. I lived in the DC area years ago when I moved out here. There were these two guys called Ben and Brian in the morning. And the one guy, Brian could do imitate. He was, he could, he could imitate anybody. I mean, he could impersonate anybody and he did a lot of country music stars because it was a country music station. So he imitate, he Im did a perfect imitation of George Strait. So they got a hold of George's driver, you know, for his big tour bus. They call him up one day and they go, uh, you know, I, well, it's, it's George. Yeah, George. I think we're going to sell the bus. Would you just go ahead and get that thing ready for me? So they actually put George <laughs> straight tour bus up for sale right before he went on tour. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> 
And when they got George Strait on with these guys and he said, did just go ahead and do your imitation. George was impressed. He goes, that is damn good. (laughs) But I mean, it's just the fact that they got this driver. You sure you want to sell it? We're going on tour. Yeah. You know, I've had enough of this bus. I just think we need a new one. So you just, you get this thing cleaned up and we'll put a price tag on it. You know, know, the anonymity of humor. The anonymity of the phone can't be beat. You know, I worked with a guy who was absolutely, well, I worked with a lot of people who were crazy, but this guy would pick up the phone and call the front desk at a precinct and have people transferred. He'd pretend to be an inspector or a chief from downtown and say, I I need you to send a sergeant and and 10 cops over to, uh, you know, 42nd Street and 10th right now. Okay, whose authority is inspector? Go, okay. And they would do it and they'd be sitting there for an hour. And then he would call up and say, I haven't come back. It's called off. He did crazy stuff like that all the time, just to just to give people something to do. He was like, "I'm bored. Let's mess with people." Well, you got to we mess like with that each other in your sanity. You know, oh, with, God. with all the crap you guys were seeing up there, holy cow! We had to have fun. You had to laugh. You know, if you can't laugh, you go crazy. You just so we we laughed as much as we could, and uh, it was a great run. It was a great run. Yeah, it's just good coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The art of screwing with other cops, that's, that is, uh, you know, we used to do stuff like, uh, you had to, you had to have patience too. So guys that would piss you off, we would take and collect for like a month, all the three hole punches. And then the guys, the other detectives that had take home cars, you'd pour it down their vents <laughs> and then you'd wait till November. <laughs> And then they turn it on in November. And I mean, I swear to God, it looked like one of those Christmas globes that you turned upside down. And <laughs> Just the whole car was flooded with those three hole punches. And then the funny part was you just when you think you were done, like in April, one or two of those would just go poof, you know, and just pop out of the thing just to remind them, you know, don't fuck. My, my favorite response was you'll never know when you'll never know where Skippy when it happens. You'll know who and you'll know why. Yeah. <laughs> just sleep peacefully. Yeah, we used to put talcum powder in the vents. Talcum powder is yeah, a good poof. one too. You, you leave the leave the AC or the vents on really high, turn it off, and then boom, get it with talcum powder. When at my first uh, my first marriage, the uh, the guys got the key. You know, they got the keys to my car to go out and paint it and everything before you go off on you know start your honeymoon. What they didn't know is that I was taking my my best friend's Corvette on the honeymoon, and he was taking my car. So they went out in my car and sprayed mace down in the vents. So when you turn it out, you get the face full of mace. My buddy, you know, here, I'm, I'm going off on my honeymoon. <laughs> He's in the crime. I can't even get home. I can't see shit. <laughs> uh, sick puppy, boy, I tell you. Oh. tell you. And there were so many uses for the, when they transitioned from mace to OC, the oleoresin capsicum, because that stuff, it, it was safe. I mean, the thing about it was, like they said, you could spray it on your salad. You could eat it perfectly safe. It just obviously stung like hell. So you'd, you'd spray a little bit of it on a Q-tip and you put it on the steering wheel. And so they'd get on there with their hands. And then it's like, what is this? Their eye would itch. And then oh. they'd rub their eye. And then pretty soon it's like, motherfucker, I can't see my eye. What's going on? Maybe, uh, maybe remember the door handles that you had to put your fingers up underneath them and pull them up? Yeah. You know, you could put Limburger, Limburger cheese under there. I mean, that you can't get rid of that smell for weeks. <laughs> you could put dog turds, too, I heard one time. Oh, but, uh, I have no knowledge of that one at all. That's so. nasty. <laughs> we're going to have to do a whole show. See, we've actually had people ask for this. I think we're going to do a, 
I think, Steve, I think what we're going to do is get some of our friends like, uh, you know, Dan here and Tommy and Mike and some of the other guys, everybody, just do a whole episode of the best practical jokes because I know you got more, Dan. I oh mean, there's got to be yeah. more in there, no. too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, let's save them. Don't keep your powder um, dry on those because um, I think we'll do a whole episode on best uh, best practical jokes. I, I got to tell you, man, this is this a hoot. This is just as good as talking to Tommy Joyce and, and Mike Prate when you think around here. <laughs> New York guys got the best freaking stories. It's unbelievable. <laughs> oh, it's been fun. Oh uh, yeah, and they were they were working. I can't remember which precinct it was—the seven nine or whatever. It was that one square mile area, but it's where they had all the gangster uh, death row records started and uh, some of the stuff like that. I mean, they had a lot of problems in that area, but yeah, some of the stories are just like I say, just fun. But hey, speaking of that, so let's kind of wrap this up now. Um, so, how many years did you put on before you pulled the pin? Twenty. Uh, most people in New York put twenty on. I, I went out with service retirement and uh, threw my hat into the private sector. I was ready to go. So, what did you end up? What did you end up doing? Uh, I ended up leaving. Um, I went to the terrorist task force after nine eleven and left, retired out of there, and then um, went into pri- uh, corporate security. Did some consulting, but um, worked for the Bank of New York for about a year. Uh, the, the team that I was co- that I co-led at the terrorist task force was terrorist financing and telecommunications. So I had a chance to go over to the Bank of New York and help them with some of their regulatory reporting on stuff. Um, and then I had an opportunity, and I took an advantage of an opportunity to start a corporate security program for a Fortune 50 company that was based out of Idaho. And I moved to Idaho, which was a lot like landing on the moon. But it was um, it turned out to be a very good professional move. At first, it was like, what the heck am I? What? what where are you going? You know? Which part of Idaho were you in? Coeur d'Alene or Boise, Boise. or? Yeah, Boise area. And my, my kids loved it. They, they took to it very well. Uh, a lot of good people out there. It was a great opportunity. And after two years there, I was only two years there, that company was purchased by a Minnesota company who moved me here in 2007, where I live now, which is outside Minneapolis. Uh, and I've been here since. No kidding. Where, yeah. Where at? Uh, Eden Prairie. My sister, I know where that is. My sister and brother-in-law live in Apple Valley. Oh, my okay. uh, son or my cousin or my cousin, geez, I'll work it down. My nephew is just getting reg- ready to graduate from Bethel. He's doing part-time internship at St. Paul PD. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know a lot of people so, uh, connected with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's a small town compared to New York. It's so easy to know just about everybody who's a chief, or you know, and it's been it's been a great experience in a lot of ways, except for the winters. Um, <laughs> which I'll let go. Yeah. And staying out of downtown Minneapolis too. That's not, that's like almost like a no go zone is it probably reminds you of New York in some places back in the day. You know, it, I feel bad for, for the, for the guys and girls in the Minneapolis police department. The city has uh, done their best to destroy that agency. Uh, they've allowed it to happen. They've helped it happen. A lot of bad stuff going on. The, it's, it's not a, it, Minneapolis itself is not the best place to be. Let's put it that way. I'm glad I'm outside it. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I've been here, like I said, 15 years, and I, I went from, from Super Value on to Optum, which is I, I worked in compliance. I was helping them with investigations in their compliance area and privacy area, and it was a great experience. Part of United Health Group, a very big company. Uh, then I had a chance to become the chief security officer for U.S. Bank, which was uh, kind of the top of the heap in the security world, being a CSO. And I had a lot of responsibility. I had a team of 240. Uh, I had people in Europe and Mexico and um, just, you know, a great experience. And that time ended. They did a, a reshuffle organizationally, offered me a package. I took it very happily. And now I do a variety of things. Um, of all things, I think I joked with, with Murph about this. My wife and I own 
a, uh, a nail salon franchise um, that she runs and she loves and all that stuff. And yes, I do occasionally get my feet. Oh, come on, admit. I was about to, you go down and get your nails done, don't you, pal? I, hey, you own the place. If I can get my feet massaged and cleaned up, why not? There's no shame in it, man. I tell you, right? You worked Asians all those years. What what did anybody expect you were going to get into in retirement, right? Oh, Murph. Oh, my God. <laughs> that and Benny Hanna, dude. Yeah. You are on a roll. I feel like it's That's a good thing there's no human resources home. area here, huh? Yeah. Yeah. We true. don't have an HR department at Game of Crime. Uh, my wife and that daughters, is one of my degrees, but uh, my wife and daughters—they all live down there. I think the granddaughters are starting to live down at those Asian nail salons as well. Well, we're not an Asian one. It's a—it's—it's uh, it's very clean. It's fun. It's a—it's a good company. She loves it. But uh, so she does that. I help out here and there with that. But for the most part, I just do consulting right now, and I. Uh, I help out a variety of companies, and most of the work that I'm doing right now is really interesting. It's with a company, a local company called 360, and 360 is a intelligence and investigations firm uh, involved in cyber um, investigations, social media stuff. Um, they actually, it's just a couple of guys, but the main guy of the company, main two, one is uh, Mike Olson, who was a former Secret Service agent who ran Cheney's Detail for a while. And he is really good with electronic crimes and cyber and stuff. And a guy named uh, Jason Heilman, who's a former local detective. The two of them are really sharp guys and very interesting work, uh, work with law firms and work with um, a wide variety of clients on a wide variety of things. None of it is security per se, like security guards or anything like that or executive protection. It's not that. It's more... Um, protection of assets they and schools and systems like that we work with but they actually they actually developed a a tool <clears throat> which i think is really interesting and it's starting to gain some traction so in 2015 i i co-wrote and published a book called workplace safety establishing an effective violence prevention program which if i may shamelessly plug is a phenomenal stocking stuffer for the holidays the new york <laughs> times called it a page re a page turner provided the book is out and in the wind um, it's, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm on their worst seller list. So I, I, I cherish that title. It is, Don't worry. We'll pimp you out. So give us the name one more time. Workplace safety, workplace safety, establishing an effective violence prevention program. My co-writer, Randy and I were peers at SuperValue, and we worked on quite a few threat assessments and, uh, other issues. It's a blueprint for how to build a violence prevention response and recovery program for an organization of any size. Uh, when I was at U.S. Bank, the book was used as a blueprint to develop a program there. As a consultant, I've, I've used it with other companies as well. And it really it really has some, some you know, I, just because I half wrote it, I, I'm a little biased, but it's got some pretty interesting stuff in it that's different. But a lot of threat assessment work that's done out there is um, is done in-house by organizations who may or may not have the ability to do it. Let's say, for example, a school system. The guys at 360 created a system whereby it's called CHIRP 360, C-H-I-R-P 360. C stands for cyber, H is human, information, reputation, and physical, the five main uh, assets that you have to protect in any organization. CHIRP 360 is an anonymous, capable online reporting platform that allows for an organization to take their scope of people who are responsible for security and safety and broaden it to the entire community. You can go on, anybody can go on, pick up their phone and go on an app and say, I heard that seventh grader John might bring a gun to school next week. Or I heard that Mary who works in accounting, her husband wants to kill her and she doesn't want to tell anybody. 
all these things that pose risks to people that now come in. But it, it doesn't just go into the organization where the people sit and take it in and not really know what to do with it. It goes to them, but it also comes to us. We see it. Mike and I and Jason have decades of threat assessment training and experience, practical hands-on. We help the organization. We guide them to safety, guide them through a, a potential threat to safety. And it's unique because I know of a lot of tools, but I don't know any other tool that's, that's overseen actively by a group that immediately begins to assess, immediately begins to investigate when necessary. We can run backgrounds, license plates, um, check for you know protective orders, all that stuff. And so it's a, it's a pretty comprehensive tool. It's getting, it's getting interesting. They just developed it not long ago. A couple of clients have it. A few more will be taking it on. But it's a way, let's say, for example, your kids are in school. They don't want to go in and talk to their principal about what they're hearing about somebody who's potentially acting in a disturbing or threatening way. If you give people the opportunity to report it without strings attached, without fear of reprisal, uh, the goal is to get the information. And the secondary goal is to get it in the right hands and to the right eyes. So that's, that's a big thing that, that I'm involved in right now. And additionally to that, uh, because I'm not busy enough, I'm also uh, developing with a local chemical company an alternative to pepper spray. Uh, and it's going to be, uh, you know, water-based. It won't be aerosol, fog. It'll just be target-specific. And it's going to be um, available for law enforcement, private security, and there's a market for it. Uh, done a bunch of pre-marketing with a lot of agencies, and we'll see where that goes. So it'll be a handheld look just like pepper spray, but it's not pepper spray. You can spray it on somebody who's a foot away from somebody else and it only hits the person you hit. Nobody else is impacted. So well, we spoke to the- you also do some keynote speaking? Yes, I do. Yes. Um, I just sat on a panel for conversion here in St. Paul, but I, I have done uh, my share of keynote speaking engagements on a variety of topics, everything from uh, what, what basically is covered in my book, to my 9-11 experiences, NYPD experiences, to um, everything. I've done human resources presentations on how to properly hire, screen and hire people, how to manage and discipline them, and how to terminate them so that they go away and stay away. That's one thing that I've seen organizations do wrong for many years. They, they mishandle it. Um, they forget about the human dignity piece. Um, so yeah, I, I try to keep my hand busy, you know, how would people find you if they wanted to bring you in to speak at an event? Uh, the best way to find me, you can just go to my LinkedIn, which is uh, just, it's Dan Murphy, or you could um, email me at danmurphy1107 at Gmail. There you go, everybody, if you're looking for a keynote speaker. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll put that, we'll put that stuff into our show notes and, uh, you know, we'll do that with LinkedIn. Got to get a site. Got to get a site. If you're going to do that, man, just get yourself a little webpage. You know, Dan Murphy, danmurphyspeaks.com. We'll call up there and they'll, everybody will get a little personal message. Hi, this is the captain. <laughs> Just, uh, you know, <laughs> go fuck off. I don't like you. <laughs> go fuck yourself. <laughs> I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go fuck yourself. I need you to go. There you go. I'm going to call you up and leave you that message yeah. sometime. <laughs> I will give you your family because that's how my family treats me. So I... <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, God. I'm sorry, man. It's just, but we're definitely going to have to do a whole. Uh, you know what we may do, Steve? Uh -huh. I have an idea. This this is going to be one of those. Uh, we'll do like an online live event. We'll invite 
four or five guys on, and that's all we'll do. We'll, it'll be a pay-per-view type of thing, but we'll do best stories, best practical jokes, you know. And uh, I think what we'll do is get a surprise guest. Get, get, is the captain, is Duke still alive? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not certain. Uh, he'd be great to get on a show if he was because – Nobody can imitate him like him. He's unique in his voice. Trust me. Uh, oh, Boyle, I could probably get on. He, he's he's a riot. I mean, he would be a uh, god. He's so funny, so funny. Oh, I mean, we get Tommy Joyce on here too. He's, oh. I, I think Tommy's just he's as funny as you are, Dan. He's he's yeah. better. I, I, I take just... second seat. Good. Oh, no, man. no, no. You guys are all good. Well, hey, look. Well, first of all, this is us saluting you. Well, job well done. We appreciate the way you serve the citizens in New York, the, the cases that you worked on. We'll definitely have to, like I said, bring you back because we'll talk about too about 9-11. So many people have a 9-11 story and there's no stories like the people who were in New York and uh, the Pentagon, you know, that day that were there, uh, you know, when it when it all happened. So, but hey, this is us saluting you saying Thank you for serving. And, you know, at the end of the day, just, you know, you're continuing to serve. But, man, just it's good to know that there's good people out there like you who were dedicated to the job. New York has their own way of doing stuff, and you got to appreciate it. They're different than California. But the point about it is you guys went out, you got the job done. Um, and when you went after the worst of the worst, you brought your best. So this is us saluting you, saying job well done there. Absolutely. It's been an honor to have you on here, Dan. I'm glad we ran into each other at ICP down in Dallas this year. Um, and glad that you had the time to fit us into your schedule, man. This is, uh, I think people, I, like I said, I said it before, New York guys have the best stories. <laughs> I, the best, yeah. just the best stories. We have, right, the captain. We'll just go fuck yourself. Yeah. Uh, Tommy, <laughs> we got the best stories. <laughs> We've got a section on our Patreon channel that we call You Can't Make This Shit Up. And I mean, that's all these stories yeah. fit into there. <laughs> you just can't make this shit up. Yeah, so thank you, brother. It, we appreciate you having on here. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor, and I will leave you with a quick story that, that clarifies for any of your listeners who may not know the difference between FBI agent, CIA operations officer, and an NYPD detective. You ready? All right. Yes. There's a contest. The contest is this. Two FBI agents, two CIA operations officers, and two NYPD detectives stand at the edge of a forest. The contest is one group at a time of two will go in and find the rabbit. Okay, so the two FBI guys come to the edge of the forest. They look around a little bit. They write some notes down. They decide they're going to have to go do attack plan, talk to their sack. They're going to have to get everything put down on paper, do some research. They can't go in just yet. They got to get everything ready. It takes time. Two CIA guys go up. They walk into the forest. They spread around a bunch of money. They develop a network of informants. They have satellites going over. They have grids. They have a whole big thing set up. They come out without the rabbit, and they won't tell anybody what they saw or didn't see. <laughs> Two NYPD detectives stand there. One of them takes his butt, puts it out on the ground. They walk in. They come back. Five minutes later, they got a bear, this big bear, with his arms behind his back, and he's going, okay, I'm a fucking rabbit. I'm a rabbit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be whatever you want me to be. <laughs> we got our caller, Chief. We got our caller. He's good to go. You did it. Call Jack Maple. Yeah. There, that's, by the way, I applaud you on the correct terminology, CIA case officers or intelligence officers. When I hear somebody say I'm a CIA agent, I just want to fucking arrest them and punch them in the face. They don't know. Anyway, good use of terminology. All right. Thank you. Thank now you. we all know that I, I had another story, but we'll save that for another time. So uh, on the differences. So. No, I'll just tell you anyway. Okay, last story, right? So, um, <laughs> um, uh, three 
the, you know, three agencies decide who has the best dogs. So you've got uh, FBI, ATF, and NYPD. And they go, what can your dogs do? And ATF goes, watch this. They turn their dog loose. Dog goes into the ship down behind tons of steel and finds 100 kilos of uh, plastic explosive. They go, that's pretty good. NYPD goes, watch this. He turns their dog loose. He goes farther into the ship, into a shipping container, finds 1,000 kilos of Coke. And they go, that's my dog. Look at what he can do. <laughs> and they finally look at the FBI guy. They say, what can your dog do? He goes, here, hold my beer. Watch this. He turns his dog loose. He screws the other two and puts out a press release. <laughs> Uh, we've really gone down here oh oh my god that is so Uh, good i'm gonna retell that so eerily accurate yes (laughs) and all our all our cop listeners are gonna love this yeah And and our FBI guys, we love you. Have a sense of humor and don't put me on a watch list. Damn it, I asked you that last time. (laughs) It's tough to leave the country when you're on a watch list. Please. All right, right, that's it. We're bringing it to an end. So, hey, this is us saluting you. Everybody else, y'all stay good. You two don't go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. I don't if I had left any harder, Steve, I would have I would have been passed out <laughs> on my desk one from just still getting over this stuff. But number two, just the stories about like going into the woods. Okay, I'm a bear. I'm a I mean, I'm a rabbit. I'm a rabbit. <laughs> You know, I've heard most of those of those cop jokes like that. I'll be whatever you want me to be. I'm yeah, a rabbit. Uh, okay, I'm a rabbit. All right. <laughs> you know, and, and I I know some of y'all are probably thinking it's a little bit childish when we do stuff like that, but in this line of work, you see much so much grief, yeah. so much chaos in your life. You kind of have a sense of humor to maintain your sanity. Um, so it, that's why it's, that's why it's so funny. And it may be a dark sense of humor every now and then, but that you know that's part of the job. You know, it just. But here's the here's the best part though. Say what you want. A lot of people may not like some of his jokes or our jokes, but let me tell you something. But when you listen to the dedication of of him and guys and girls like him, he's like, we're going to do whatever it takes to find these people yep. who killed, who yep. kidnapped. 17 counts of kidnapping. Yeah. He, it, he, here's stuff, stuff that was so bad. Normally, you can get cops to talk about most anything. But Dan said, no, there was stuff just so horrific that was done to people. He didn't even he did, we didn't even get into it with him, even off off the record. Right. It was just that bad. So, um, you know, he's entitled uh, he's entitled to what he's earned, which is his retirement. But closing those cases. And I just you know, I just think, again, my hat's off to all of these people out there that are doing this job, especially Absolutely. under current conditions like this. I got a nephew who is about to graduate college. Actually, his football team, uh, they're in a lower division, but they're going on. uh, If they win one more game, they're in the national championship. So uh, if they play that, that'll actually be played out here, the Alonzo Stag Bowl out here in Annapolis. So, um, but he's, he's, but he's been interning with St. Paul PD. So I've talked with him, you know, I've given him the the skinny and it's like, it's going to be a tough time because he lives right outside. I mean, St. Paul is right next to Minneapolis. It is not a good time. It's where he's from. He's from Eden Prairie, uh, close to where my sister and brother-in-law are. So it is a tough time to get into this profession. It really is. And the, you also heard in this interview a little bit about the um, egos getting in the way uh, within law enforcement because you get all these type A's in there. We all think we know what's best. 
Uh, we don't always, always agree with each other. And, and the one kidnapping, they solved it within less than two hours before another detective was going to take it over. I mean, you know, that guy, he did create some great things in his career, but you know what? You're carrying the same damn badge. It's not a competition. You're supposed to be working together. And if somebody's working the case and you can help them, that's what you should be doing. Of course, he's, if, if he ever listens to this, he'll probably be like, screw you, pal. You know, you, you damn Southern boy, you can't even talk right. It's like running a re relay race, the 400-meter relay race, and you run the first 399 meters, and then the guy wants to be one meter away. Say, oh, give me the baton. I'll take it across the finish line <laughs> yeah. to claim the glory. I don't think so. These guys nah. brought it across the finish line. So, hey, man, our hat's off to you. Absolutely. Dan Murphy, the other Murphy on this podcast. There's Murph and Murphy. And we'll definitely have Dan back. Dan had 35 pages. I'm not kidding. 35 pages. <laughs> Murph sent, when he sent it to me, I looked at it and said, holy crap. Hello, he was serious. And that didn't even get into the... Um what he's doing afterwards. That was no. just part of his NYPD career. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know how much of it, you know, it's, he probably only captured 15, 20% of probably what he actually did. So, yeah. but still, Hey, this is good stuff. So guys, but let us close out by saying, first of all, this has been great. This has been fun. Um, Absolutely. we have put on out a lot of episodes and we've, we've never missed an episode. We've never missed getting anything out. So, um, it's time for us to take a break, to retool a little bit, recharge, get ready for next year. We're, we're still doing some recording for those of you who are players on Patreon. We're not, nothing's changing with Patreon. Patreon is right. still coming out on time as scheduled, everything. This just gives us a chance to take a break, uh, finish out the year on a couple big things. And I'll let you guys know what's coming up with this uh, project I got with Department of Justice, because you guys are going to play a big part of this, uh, helping us solve crime, return the missing, protect the innocent. Um, as we create, Yeah, which is, we, we created, will be called the National Center for Open and Unsolved Cases. So... We're actually working on some neat stuff. But anyway, that being said, we're going to bring this to a close, as we always do. But we do, we bring it to a close by saying, head on over to Apple and Spotify. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know what you think about it. Hit those five stars. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. That's where we got pictures of Dan back in the day. I mean, when you see some of these things, it looks like 80s hair. It is. It's 80s, 90s hair. It looks like, you know. <laughs> That's what it was. I mean, you know, hell, I had a mullet back in the day, believe it or not. Now I have very little hair. <laughs> like that's what happened to it. Uh, well, yeah. Well, we'll have to get a picture of that. I got to see you in a mullet. I mean, that that would yeah. be interesting. You know, I did have uh, at one point when I was in Miami, I had hair down to my shoulders, maybe a little bit farther. And the only person that's ever seen me in a ponytail was my wife. I would only do that at home. <laughs> kind of embarrassed. Well, hey, if you want Murph to uh, pony up his pictures of his ponytail, um, I don't let us any. know. And the <laughs> way you can do that is head on over to social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter. Let us know at Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Um, but where you got to be, where you got to be, Murph, let's close this out. Just tell everybody where they got to be for the month of December. If you're not there, get there. And if you are there, bring others with you. Where do you got to be? Where do you got to be? Come on over to Patreon. Check us out. Game of Crimes. Look at the different content we've got on there. It's things that we don't talk about on the regular podcast. Um, things that you probably may agree with some of what we say. We may not agree. We get a little more opinionated on there. Um, and we don't have guests. Well, we do. We had Javier and I were on there once, and then we had Chris and Dave on there talking about yeah, those are our special, uh, But those are our special bonus episodes, too. Yeah. So, And we talk about current affairs. Uh, we take topics from our listeners. But what we ask is if, uh, you know, consider if you're getting ready for Christmas, consider giving Patreon as a gift to somebody. Uh, we encourage you to tell your friends about it and get them to come over and give us a shot and see what they think about it, and then let us know your comments. We need to do something to increase our uh, our patronage over there. To be honest with you, it's uh, 
we're putting so many hours in, especially Morgan. He does all our editing and the technical side of this. Uh, I spend time finding our guests and read books and things like that. But um, it's which is tough for Murph because Connie has to read it to him at night. You know, and they don't put pictures in their damn book anymore. See, see si, si Pablo. See si Pablo run. See si Pablo die. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert: Pablo dies. But just all we're asking for is a little help here so we can keep bringing you the great stories. We got some stories in January that are going to knock your socks off. We're not going to tell you about them just yet. But you, I'm serious. You want to come over because I can't wait to get these interviews done. Yeah. And we're going to be doing a lot of recording during the month of December. All right. So, hey, guys, we want to thank you guys once again for supporting us, for being players. So uh, this will be our sign off only for the month of December in the year of our Lord, 2022. Um, we will come back in January. And start off with, uh, I don't know if we're going to have an entirely new format, but we will be doing things slightly different. But the one big change is we will be re releasing episodes back to back. So if we have a two-part episode, if it comes, it, it'll come out Monday and then on Tuesday. So we're going to be doing that, get it out to you. We may tighten things up a little bit, but I think we're going to keep doing what you guys have wanted, which is we go deeper than anybody else. We do long-form stories. Um, and, uh, just keep giving us that feedback, but in the, but more importantly, you guys have a safe holiday Yes. as you're listening to this. Hopefully everybody had a great Thanksgiving. We want you to have a very merry and safe Christmas. Right. Um, and remember kids don't do meth, whatever you do, don't do meth. Don't steal Boston, butt and, uh, buy owls in the middle of the night. <laughs> hey everyone. Thank you very much for listening. God bless you all. Merry Christmas. Yeah, and thank you once again, guys, for playing the biggest, baddest, most seasonal-friendly, Merry Christmas-friendly game of all, the Game of Crimes. 